0: My office is in the chancery. That's the, the bishop's office, the diocesan center. I'm a newly minted evangelical surrounded by Catholics. I've got the bishop down the hall. i got these nuns and priests. And uh, um, I'm asking myself the question, what's the difference? Where do where the lines of commonality and difference
1: fall? It's watering time. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today in our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. We have talked to a lot of people over the last couple of years on Apollo Swattered. We've talked to scholars and missionaries, filmmakers, musicians. We've heard some pretty incredible stories of what God has been doing in our own culture and in cultures around the world. I mean, we've talked to people like Nick Ripken and Jamie Staples and Audrey Frank and Jackson Wu and Jason Georges and and David Garrison, and people like this that are working among different groups of people all over the world. We've even talked to someone about the world of social influencers. I mean, we've talked to all kinds of people and what what it means to follow Jesus in our everyday world, but we haven't talked to anyone about one of the most common situations that many of us face in our everyday lives. And here's the situation. How do we engage with our Roman Catholic friends, family, neighbors. I know of some Roman Catholic family and friends who listen to this show, and I'm very grateful to have them listen. I'm honored. But we still have to ask the question, how should we even think about this subject and our differences? Many of our Protestant church expressions and our habits were born out of a reaction to Roman Catholicism that started way back in the 1500s, but too often we really don't know that background and the issues that were at stake then, much less what difference they might make today. After all, it's been 500 years. Does any of this matter now? Can't we just all get along? I've invited an old friend of mine to come onto the show. Today, we're going to be talking to Chris Costaldo, Chris is an old college friend who's a pastor in Naperville, Illinois, and he is an expert in Roman Catholicism. He's written a lot about it, but not just in the academic sense, but in the experiential one. I mean, he is a real expert. He's a New Yorker, an Italian whose grandparents owned a restaurant and who has an Aunt Marie. You can't get more Italian than that. And he's not just a classroom expert. As I said, he is a former Roman Catholic kind of expert. Chris is going to share his story and help us understand some of the differences as well as the points of similarity. We're going to see what is at the heart of our faith and what we're all facing today in our culture. It's an important conversation that will no doubt hit home for many of us, even if you don't have an Aunt Marie. Happy listening. Gastaldo. Welcome to Apollo's watered. Great to be with you, Travis. Long time no see, brother. How you doing?
0: Yeah, I'm doing well. Still here in Illinois. But you're down in Florida.
1: You got to you got to live the dream, baby. Yeah. Disney World needs Jesus. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Disney is World needs is, Jesus.
0: Is that an example of British understatement?
1: <laughs> yes i think it is but are you ready for the fast five ready or not let's do it okay coffee is best if it's fill in the blank
0: dark uh if it if it has some froth milk on top of it and it's called a cappuccino
1: <laughs> not, not, if it's called if it's something different <laughs> I like that. Uh, You're from New York, originally. Yeah, Long Island. Island. So here we go. Chicago or New York-style pizza?
0: Oh, that's a no-brainer. There, I I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there really isn't such a thing as Chicago-style pizza.
1: What? What are you talking about right now? I'm
0: sorry. You're committing
1: Apollo-swattered heresy. I know,
0: I know. I'm sorry, (laughs) brother. But when you're raised in New York as an Italian, there's only one kind of pizza, and it's New York style.
1: (laughs) Any specific
0: New York style? You know, there's so many restaurants. You you drive down the street, and they're everywhere. And it's Gino's and Joey's, and they're all fantastic. What about your family? Well, I married a girl from Illinois, so... I mean, this is an example of real ecumenism. um, So she does something in between. I'm not sure what to call it, but it's delicious. I can assure you. (laughs) Is she Italian? She's half Italian. Her mother is Italian, which means she can cook Italian. Oh, okay. It was when we were classmates at Moody that uh, she made some biscotti cookies. And that was the moment when Cupid shot his arrow. (laughs)
1: i like that when you give a shot at zero you know way to a man's heart through his stomach right that's the the old adage okay here we go this is the third question Mm -hmm. if you could live in any century besides this one which one would it be and why
0: yeah i heard i heard carl truman talking about uh what it's like to live in centuries before our own and he talked about the importance of Dentistry, you know, and uh, plumbing, and it re- it really changed my outlook um, <laughs> <living> in earlier <laughs> centuries. So the truth <laughs> is, I'm very happy to live in this century.
1: <laughs> well, didn't the um, pandemic prove that for everybody when the first item they go for is toilet paper? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: right? We take for granted. Um, but yeah, you know, I'm torn between I mean, first century. You know, obviously living among Jesus and the disciples. Uh, but I, I, if, I, if that's not an option, then I would say the Reformation. And, you know, just to see what was happening uh, in Italy, you know, some of my work has been on the Italian Reformation. And so to be at a fly on the wall when uh, Peter Martyr Vermili is talking to uh, Jerome Zanke and, and these characters would be very exciting.
1: I'm not sure who these people are.
0: This is bad.
1: No, no, you're not.
0: You're not alone. It's an untold story. Uh, it, it's on my bucket list to write something on it someday. So hopefully I, hopefully I can provide a, a little bit of illumination.
1: Yeah, it's, it's good to hear these stories. And sometimes we think that all the stories have been told or written. That's not even close to being true. There's so many good stories that can edify and encourage us now. Mm-hmm. We just need guys like you to Italian, Ital- Italian, Italian. There is a Freudian <laughs> slip right there. Uh, okay. Here's your, here's your fourth question. What is a weird habit your wife or kids say you have?
0: Yeah. You know what? I'm a, I'm a worrier brother. Uh, I resonate with Michel de Montaigne who once said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune most of which has never happened. (laughs) You know, they would point to some kind of neurosis. I came home yesterday and my daughter was wanting to show her love for her dad by cleaning my pour over unit. And I have this nifty little, it's actually plastic, it's not porcelain. And naturally it's it's gotten stained by the coffee. So she had it in the sink and she was cleaning it with Clorox bleach. I thought, I'm not sure we're supposed to use Clorox. Bleep, but really <laughs> Thankfully, uh, God gave me the wherewithal to bite my tongue and say, thank you, sweetie. But, you know, it's those kinds of things that can send Chris spiraling into some kind of worry. Uh,
1: so, yeah. Okay, here's, here's the fifth question. And this one's going to be very near and dear to your heart. Mm-hmm. If you were an Italian restaurant, what would be your name and why? Yeah.
0: If I was an Italian restaurant, I would be called Iononi's. and it's for sentimental reasons. Uh, my grandfather owned a restaurant by that name. That's my,
1: oh. my
0: mother's maiden name. So I think it'd be kind of cool to restart Iononi's restaurant.
1: Would it be like Italian family style?
0: Yeah, very much. Yeah. He was oh. located right down the block from Nassau Coliseum, where the New York Islanders played. So they had, they had hockey sticks with signatures on it all over. And it was a fun place.
1: I think Italian restaurants, out of all the restaurants I've ever gone to, there's just something. I, I didn't grow up in Italian, but I married an Italian. Hmm. And so I've learned to appreciate the culture. But there's just something about Italian restaurants. There's a, something in that just in the the atmosphere that makes you either just want to eat or... I don't know, be in the mafia or something like that. Right. or both. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's very old world, but yeah. very, I don't know. It, it's just very attractive. All right. Well, hearing a little bit of your story, which you've already shared, but let's hear your story. How did you get from there? Because you were raised Roman Catholic, and now you're this Protestant pastor and theologian and writing on this subject. So let's hear the, the Chris Costaldo story.
0: Yeah. So raised on Long Island, um, I was a typical nominal Catholic for so many years. And we went to church when I was young, had a great experience. Monsignor Tom was a terrific priest who taught us the faith. But as we got older, you know, suburban life led us into this frenzy, this pace whereby we did not go to church as regularly. And uh, I suppose I descended into disillusionment. And so... Um, was always interested in faith, but never quite understood why Jesus came and what it was all about, you know, so for all of the understanding I had about church, um, I, I never grasped the central message of mm-hmm. Christ. So I, uh, I became ill at age 19, was in the hospital with meningitis for five weeks And, you know, there's something that happens to you when you're staring at the ceiling, wondering whether you're going to live or die. And uh, so I resolved to embark upon a quest for truth during that time. Uh, So after being released from the hospital, I started to practice transcendental meditation under the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Uh, You know, find a quiet place, repeat my mantra. But um, despite all of my effort, I, I never realized the answer or the peace, you know, or the meaning. I walked on three yards of burning red hot coals with my bare feet at a Tony Robbins seminar at the Jacob Javits Center. That's kind of like the McCormick Place of New York. And it was exhilarating, uh, but that too fell short. I would listen to famous speakers through the learning annex in, in major Midtown hospitals, you know, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, these sorts of people, but still came up short. So shortly thereafter, um, my dad had a heart attack. I was taking the train into Manhattan where I was working at the time. And my grandfather called me there and said, hey, look, this is what's happened. You need to come home right away. So that was an important turning point. I weren't sure whether he was going to live. I'm running the family business and uh, started to talk with an employee who was an evangelical. Now, you need to realize in New York, the very few of them, Uh, you have two types of people religiously, Catholics and Jews. And then there's this other category called other,
1: which is sort of like (laughs) a religious drip pan. Uh,
0: There's very little understanding of what Protestantism is among most people, you know, in terms of a legitimate Christian tradition. So she began to share the gospel, Jane. And uh, she had been saved during the 1970s Jesus movement. She was a prostitute. She was on drugs Mm. and got radically saved. So she Mm. shared her testimony, Uh, very eccentric, but loved Jesus and it was obvious and it was infectious and magnetic. And so I listened and then she uh, one day invited my mother and me, dad's still in the hospital, to go to church. So Wednesday night, this Protestant church I arrive, I'm standing in the parking lot, Travis, and it's completely packed. And I'm thinking who goes to church on Wednesday night? I've never seen anything like it. We enter this contemporary worship center and I saw things there I never saw before in my life as a Catholic. Um, On the platform, they had drums and guitars and it was just incredible. So the preacher gets up and imagine, if you will, a combination of a young Billy Graham and an Al Pacino, you know, <laughs> uh, olive green, double-breasted suit, you know, he's got a pinky ring on, he's waving it around, <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, this is no joke, the um, the ushers were all standing around with carnations, that's how you identified them, and these, some of them at least, were members of major crime families who had been converted in th- in the you know 1970s, and you could tell by their name tags, Gambino, Castellano, you know mm. that sort of thing. So very interesting place. So after a long time of sharing uh, stories, it wasn't exactly expositional preaching. and you know, I remember this uh, discourse on semolina Italian bread, but eventually he gets up, and he says, "Someone is here looking for truth, and I want to tell you, look no further." And then he explained, Jesus came and he died for you. He took your sin upon himself and uh, they laid him in a tomb. But after three days, by the power of the spirit, God raised him and he's alive. And Jesus is standing by now with outstretched arms, inviting you to come and give yourself to him. So in good traditional Protestant fashion, I responded, went went down to the front, uh, prayed to receive Christ and that was the decisive turning point.
1: How old were you at this time? 23. 23. So what happened right after that? I mean, did you sense this change right away? What happened to your dad? I did.
0: Yeah. So there was something existential, if you will, that happened. I I felt different. I You know, the relationship with God was, was now there. And uh, dad wound up improving and uh, came back to work. Uh, he's still alive and doing well. Um, I went to that church for a bit. It was, it was sort of, a, um, I think you could say, Kenneth Copeland hyper-faith-like church. So mm-hmm. I only went there for a little while before a friend said, hey, look, you might consider this other church. Um, but I, I went for a while, and I was so biblically illiterate. Here's how uh, bad it was. When the preacher got up and mentioned the book of Hebrews— the way I heard that was, well, that's not for me because I'm not Jewish. Of course, a lot of Jewish people on Long Island. Mm. But then when you mentioned the Book of Romans, I thought, well, that's for me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's
1: the level of ignorance I had. Is, it, is there a Book of Ireland? Or a yeah, book of, right. <laughs> I mean, what the are we about here?
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So I grew... And I had uh, mentors and it was a wonderful time. And, and Jane was there as a, a friend who spoke into my life. And uh, it was within a year then when I, um, I sensed a desire to serve in ministry. And basically how that went was dad came back to work. Um, I'm living at home, I'm working with dad, I'm you know, 23, a little too much time with mom and dad. So I, I get a job working with one of his clients a fundraising firm that worked primarily in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So now I'm in West Palm Beach, Florida, working for this firm, raising 25 million dollars for Catholic charities, an endowment for seminarians, other causes. My office is in the chancery—that's the the bishop's office, the diocesan center. I'm a newly minted evangelical, surrounded by Catholics. I got the bishop down the hall. I got these nuns and priests, and. Uh, um, I'm asking myself the question, what's the difference? Where where do the lines of commonality and difference fall in these traditions? I started going to a a Baptist church. The singles pastor took me under his wing, was mentoring me. And it was in that context then when I decided I would love to serve in ministry. I, I think God's calling me. That Sunday, you'll enjoy this, Travis. That Sunday, we had a guest preacher come. Whose name is George Sweeting from Moody Bible <laughs> Institute.
1: And where, where is, are you in West Palm? Is this First Baptist of West Palm?
0: Yeah, first on Flagler. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right there on the intercoastal next to Palm Beach Atlantic. And um, and in his sermon, he told stories of individuals who had left successful careers in order to go to Moody in Chicago and study for ministry. And it was like God was speaking directly to me. So that led me to the the next chapter of life at Moody.
1: So you go to Moody Bible Institute as an undergraduate mm-hmm. and you're you're older than the rest of the students. A few
0: years older, yeah. So by that time I was 23, just turning 24. Okay. That's September. And um, yeah, I felt like an old man at that point. You know, I look back now and see that of course is ridiculous, but um, thankfully there were a number of students like me who were a little bit older and that became the Circle of Friends. And Moody was marvelous. Moody was Camelot, where I got to study the Bible and theology. You know, got to go out on Michigan Avenue with Mike McDuffie and others and, and preach in the open air. Mm. Uh, that became my ministry. And so it was, it was a marvelous experience.
1: And then that, after that, you went into a church. From there, I went to Gordon-Conwell. Oh, you went to seminary. Yeah, I went
0: to do an MDiv. At that time when we were there, we had a number of profs who were talking up Gordon Conwell. And it was the East Coast. And that was kind of my desire was to do ministry in the New York, New England area. So, yeah, Angela and I packed up, had just gotten married and uh, started an MDiv in South Hamilton.
1: Where did you go to church when you were out there?
0: First Congo, First Congregational Church.
1: Okay, okay
0: which was another marvelous experience. Dory Little, Robert Tanzel were the pastors who uh, invested in a number of us and Mm -hmm. yeah. And
1: and then from Gordon-Conwell back to Illinois.
0: Yeah, so my wife uh, became pregnant with our first child in our final year at Gordon-Conwell. And when he was born, we discovered that he has hemophilia. Uh, condition in which one's blood doesn't clot so um, we realized we would need help with his care my mother-in-law being a nurse was the right person to help us so that's what brought us back to this area she lives in st. Charles Illinois so it threw us for a loop because we were expecting to remain there Um, that that was our vision our desire but God had other plans so suddenly I'm back here in the Midwest Uh, wondering what's next and I tried to find a position it's hard though you know if you're committed to a certain area and you're looking for a church that's within driving distance at least then that that was difficult you know Mm -hmm. And, and of course when you're first graduated from seminary you start applying and you you realize everyone's looking for experience rightfully and you have none virtually none you know, I mean, mentored ministry was great during uh, seminary, but it's not quite the same. So I was rebuffed by virtually every church in our area. And now this is the area where you used to live, you know. Um, so I I said, well, hey, I, I enjoyed study. I'm going to go to Wheaton grad school, do an MA with a view to doing a Ph.D. So I enjoyed it. I was there. I was in Greg Beale's class, loving it. But a classmate told me about an opening that was about to start at College Church, a new position, a pastor of evangelism. And I thought, hey, that, that sounds interesting. So, um, so I applied, and uh, that's the, the position I eventually would uh, obtain.
1: You have to tell the, the shoe story. Oh, did I tell you that? Yeah, he did, but I want want people to hear this because this is a funny story.
0: Well, because it was a new position, they hadn't yet secured the funding. And College Church is congregational, so there was more process left. Mm -hmm. So probably about five or six months passed after I had met with Kent Hughes for breakfast, when he told me, hey, you're a fabulous candidate. I really would like to see you in this position. Then these months passed without hearing anything and i'm i'm getting you know disillusioned so having worked as a salesman in previous years i decided to take a vhs cassette of me preaching at pulpit supply somewhere i put it into a padded envelope with a package of microwave popcorn and a note <laughs> to kent and i said hey kent if you and uh, barbara are at home and you'd like something to watch Uh, perhaps you would enjoy this. And my wife is watching me do this. And she says, you're out of your mind. Like, he's going to think you're a complete lunatic. I said, hey, I have nothing to lose. And maybe he'll get charmed and think this this is what we want. So I sent it. Two days later, I heard from one of his colleagues who said, Kent got your package and said, this is exactly the uh, enterprising spirit we want in our new evangelism pastor. <laughs> so that kick-started the process, and then I was hired just a few weeks later. <laughs> and then I said to him, I said, hey, it's a good thing you you called me, because if you didn't, you were about to get uh, another package, a box with uh, a shoe in it, and a note saying, now that my foot is in the door. <laughs>
1: That's the part I love. I can't believe you said popcorn. That's so, that, that's pretty funny. And it's very creative. I have to say, you I'm know. like, darn it. I wish I would have done that. That would have been so good for other positions or something else. So way to go. Way well, to thank go. you.
0: Desperation is the mother of ingenuity.
1: <laughs> and now you are serving as the lead pastor. Where are you at?
0: New Covenant Church, Naperville, which is a plant from College Church. We hired Doug O'Donnell to to plant this congregation. Uh, Ironically, I had served as the church plant pastor at the time, so I had the privilege of working alongside of Doug and uh, launching him in the church, never thinking that I would one day return and serve here myself. But I've now been here for uh, eight months. Or eight, sorry, eight years. I
1: was like, wait, eight months? (laughs) It's such a joy. It feels like eight months. (laughs) Good save. <laughs> Good save. Uh, well, let, let's talk about, uh, let's talk a bit for a moment, because you are an author, and you've written several different books uh, on a variety of subjects, but specifically honed in on Roman Catholicism. Um, yeah. And because of that, what what do, you actually alluded to this earlier, but what do Protestants often miss about Roman Catholics, and what do Roman Catholics often miss about Protestants?
0: yeah. So the first book I wrote was in 2009 called Holy Ground, Walking with Jesus as a former Catholic. And it was a sense, in a sense, um, an attempt to help others avoid all the mistakes I had made as a new convert, going to my family, now my extended family in particular, telling them they're going to hell because they're not born again. And, uh, you know, it was it was not very winsome or effective. And um and then it it came back to my attention, at College Church, I was shepherding, um, offering pastoral care to a number of couples that consisted of a Catholic and a Protestant, and their marriages were falling apart. Hmm. So I was there as the pastor saying, look, to be sure, there, there are differences and they matter, but there is here enough common ground for your marriage to survive and even thrive. So I offered a class on that topic Um I forget the title now, but it was a it was a Wednesday night session at College Church in the commons. And there were 70 people who turned out for it. Mm. And uh, in subsequent classes, it was an enormous showing. So Kent said, hey, Chris, you've put your finger on a felt need. You really should consider writing on this. So I started to do that. And the aim was to help evangelicals understand and relate to Catholics constructively. Yeah. Uh, to avoid, again, the mistakes I made, which is a very polemical, adversarial approach. Most of the books written up to that point were pretty predictable. Uh, on one side of the page, you had biblical teaching on various topics. And then on the other side, you had the errors of Rome. And the, you know the sort of apologetic method was, well, just tell your Catholic friend and loved one why they're a heretic and, and you know, use this content to show, out, show them that they're really out to lunch. And they need to believe in Jesus because <laughs> the way you've just explained it is, is just so appealing, they can't resist. You know. I, um, so I thought having tried that approach and failed miserably, what would it look like if we um, balanced grace and truth? So John 1:14, Jesus came full of grace and truth. If I'm honest, about what the Bible says, but I'm equally serious about honoring the Catholic person with whom I'm speaking. Uh, that is to say, avoiding the extremes, which, we, which so often, that's where we live, we're either foaming at the mouth pit bulls, going for the jugular of the poor soul who disagrees with us, or we can be so open-minded that our doctrinal brains fall out of our heads and we lose all theological integrity. So that's what it, that was the project, uh, faithful with the gospel at the leading edge, but warm-hearted and relational. So that was holy ground. So yeah, that opened up a number of, of doors. So I like to say it's not apologetics per se, though it involves a little of that, uh, nor is it ecumenism. I've also done some ecumenism um, after completing my research, um, but it's not exactly that either. It's more of a a pastoral approach that is aimed at helping people who live at the Catholic-Protestant intersection understand and relate to one another constructively.
1: We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Water, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today. Because understanding the Bible changes everything. And the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Taking that into consideration for a moment, what are the things that we can do together? Because as the culture seems to become less Christian, post-Christian, whatever term you want to, to use, it seems like some of the doctrinal divisions have become less important because the, the enemies that have risen against us have become even larger, looming larger. Yeah, And some might say, well okay, it's Jesus. We got that. Let's, let's focus on this part, and we can get into the distinctions later, but the other enemies that seem to be crouching all around us with secularization, pluralism that's gone on, and really just outright apathy, disillusionment, causes people that were once enemies to be greater friends, um, at least on some of the social issues, not including the theological issues. Just put that aside for a moment. What are some of the things that we can do and work to together?
0: Yeah. I think, Travis, there is another question we need to ask before that one. And that's the right question, particularly in this cultural moment. But I think it's important for us as evangelicals to reflect on how we understand the Roman Catholic Church. Very often, we will um, consider whether the Roman Church uh, is, in fact, orthodox, whether it reflects apostolic faith, or whether it's something else, maybe a cult. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, people in our circles um, educated at the sorts of places where you and I studied and so forth will differ Mm -hmm. on that. I mean, I have differed on that throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And the way it's framed is yes or no. So if you understand the Roman Catholic Church in light of the creeds, Apostles, Nicene Creed, Then you're inclined to say, yes, they possess the same basic faith, even though they differ on things. If, however, you understand the Catholic Church through the lens of the Reformation, you're more inclined to say no, because they're not uh, legitimately orthodox. Because at the Council of Trent, uh, the Church of Rome leveled its canons against the doctrine of sola fide, faith alone, Sola is at the center of the gospel. How can you affirm a church that (laughs) opposes the gospel, right? That's the syllogism, right? Okay. I don't think it's helpful to set it up that way, yes or no. And the reason is because the Catholic church is so enormous and there is such variety of belief among Catholics. In other words, I don't think Catholic teaching, as it comes to us in the catechism that is from the magisterium, is in fact perspicuous. I don't think it's clear. Why do I say that? Because Catholics disagree. Mm. Uh, um, I've been in some ecumenical settings. I've, I've dialogued with the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity, uh, the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. I've enjoyed uh, being part of some of those uh, venues. And I've had very different experiences. Sometimes mm-hmm. you'll get a Catholic scholar who is more Protestant friendly who reads Avery Cardinal Dulles and has imbibed that notion of participation, that we participate in Christ, uh, that there's something relational and that is forensic that that happens when a person's in Christ. Well, that's not very different from what we're trying to say as reformed thinkers, right? So we're gonna have real agreement with that person. On the other hand, I've participated in dialogue with Catholic scholars who are more tried in time in, in keeping with Trent and we have uh, categorical differences, uh, fundamental differences about the gospel. Mm -hmm. I have meaningful unity with the first person there, but not with the second one. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is Catholic interpreters, Catholic theologians have very different ideas about what their tradition is saying. And I think a better approach for us as evangelicals is to listen to a particular Catholic person or consider the beliefs of a Catholic parish and then determine, do I agree? Are, are, are they biblically informed? Do they appreciate grace and in the, in the, in the other truths of which my understanding of the gospel consists? Yeah, it's not going to be the same, granted, but you may find enough unity there to say, I think that's legitimately Christian. I think that's a brother and sister.
1: Hmm.
0: Or is this person speaking with a Catholic voice that is so very different from the teaching of scripture that, there's not unity. I think that's the right approach. And if I were to put a proof text on it, I might put 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul says of Christian love, that it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I want to give this Catholic person the benefit of the doubt, listen carefully, and on the basis of what they say, determine the extent of unity I might share with him or her.
1: Well, I, I like what you said, it's really about the individual, the parish, the the qualifiers that are there, because there is not a one-size-fits-all, even even within Protestantism. I I remember hearing a, a man I was teaching on um, something in a Sunday school class and the man spoke up and I mentioned Roman Catholicism in my lesson. And he said, he tried to clarify to the class, he was an older man. And he said, what everybody has to understand is they were raised in this. And I stopped him and I was like, well, you were raised in, in Protestantism. Like his, he was blinded to the fact that he was, he, he saw his own through his own lenses right. thinking that they had lenses on their own. But when I encounter a lot of Protestants, they, 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 they either go one of two ways, either they're really hyper doctrinal, and they know everything about it. Or it's the other way where they just don't care um, about doctrine at all, you know, and then in between, you'll find the people that are that are saying to themselves, that they'll have a caricature of what a Catholic is. And I, I try to tell people not to look at the caricature, because sometimes many everyday Catholics don't always understand everything that they that the church teaches, just like I know a lot of Protestants that don't understand what the Protestant church teaches. Unfortunately, that's true in a lot of circles. Mm-hmm. Um, not always, but um, it, it is good to, to to meet the person first, rather than the the label. I mm-hmm. think if you meet the person rather than the label, that helps. But you, you mentioned some of the commonalities, and that depends upon the the individual that are there. What are though the things that you mentioned, you said, those who are very different and the actual categories of the gospel themselves; those were much more clear. And you said tr- Tridentine. Is that how you said it? Yeah, yeah. Tridentine. It made me think of the gum for a second. I had to, Trident. I had to think of it. Tridentine. And that comes. What is that even label for? Help our listeners oh, sorry. out. Sorry,
0: that's the teaching that comes from the Council of Trent.
1: Okay, Tridentine comes from the Council of Trent, which was in what year?
0: Uh, that was in the fifteen forty six. Uh, until 1563, as I recall, but there were some breaks in between depending on which Pope was inclined to support it.
1: And they're responding to what was going on with the Protestant Reformation.
0: In large measure, correct. There was also internal reform uh, that wasn't with specific reference to Protestantism, but for the most part, yes, you're right.
1: And then what then are those categories that come out of that where we really see a difference and a departure where we, we can say, no, we can't agree with where you are?
0: Well, the way the Reformed tradition uh, has reflected on it, that is the Reformation tradition, is in terms of the, the formal principle of difference and the material. So the most fundamental difference is that of authority, uh, what we would call sola scriptura, scripture alone. That is the supreme authority. By, for Christian faith, faith and practice, that is God's inspired word. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that uh, basis, then there's another difference, and that's our doctrine of justification. Uh, what's the means by which we're saved? Uh, is it faith alone or is it faith plus something else? Uh, so in, in view of the Reformation, those are the the chief issues and here's the thing for all of the development of doctrine which has happened over these intervening years uh that much hasn't really changed it really does still come down to the matter of authority and the matter of how one is accepted by god in the catholic tradition as you know there are three forms of authority sacred scripture Mm -hmm. sacred tradition both of which together constitute the word of God. Now that's just pause for a moment, consider that's different. It, oh,
1: when that's very different. It's yeah. about
0: God's word. It's not just the Bible, but it's it's the Bible and tradition. And then the third form of authority, which is the, the teaching office of the church, the so-called magisterium, which is the, the, um, the college of, of bishops with the Pope at its head who provide the authoritative interpretation of scripture and tradition. Um, so that, that's the difference from what we understand as Protestants holding our Bibles. Um, now, just to be clear, uh, our Bibles are understood in a certain context. We, we don't want to, you know, pretend that we have an objective reading to your statement just a moment ago about the fella in your church you know, th- there's no such thing as a new a view from nowhere. We're all right. we all have lenses, yeah. Yeah. right? You know, but there is one uh, object of our study that constitutes the Word of God, and it's the written inspired text. Mm. Um, and that really is the the basic difference between Protestants and Catholics.
1: Well, we see so much talk today um, about the state of Bible reading. We interviewed John Plake on the show, and we're looking at the state of Bible reading because Protestants have been known to read their Bibles um, for the most part. I know some Catholics do, but I remember inviting a woman into our small group, came from a Roman Catholic background, and she sat in a corner, almost pale, like her face was just devoid of, of any type of emotion. She was so fearful. And she looked wide as a sheet being in the small group, but yet she started to speak up and she said, we don't do this. And I, and I, she had her hands kind of out in front of her. We don't do this. And I said, do what is this? And I, I, you know, copied her motion. She goes, as Catholics, we don't sit around and talk about God. <laughs> and we definitely don't open the Bible. And she said, the only Bible I have is my, my Catholic heritage family Bible. I mean, the kind where it's, you know, it's like a hand you have to open, but, while Protestant, Protestants have been known to be people of the book, people of the Bible, we're seeing an, an, a departure from that or a falling away from those who are reading the Bible. Why is it so important for us to keep the Bible and put it back to where it belongs in our, our understanding of truth and who God is? And what's the danger if, if we continue on this precipitous slide as a culture?
0: Yeah, So I think what you've described is a benefit from Vatican II. That is uh, the ecumenical council that occurred in the 1960s, which promoted Bible reading for Uh lay Catholics. And uh, you see it now in ways that you would never have seen it in earlier generations. And that's a good thing. And Uh I think that's, for us as Protestants, important to recognize that we can invite our Catholic friend to a study. And uh, But you're right, many of them will be uncomfortable because they have perhaps been raised to think that the priest is the one who's qualified to interpret scripture. It's something that is above the head of a lay person. Mm -hmm. And that is um, actually related to the conversation we were just having a moment ago about authority. If you were to summarize um, how authority works in a Roman Catholic context versus uh, Protestant, one way to do it is to ask the question, where do we find apostolic faith? And for the, the Protestant, there is, if you will, a connection between Jesus, the living word, at the right hand of the Father, and Jesus, the, the written word, right? Hmm. Um, inspired by God, that is where we encounter the authority and saving presence of Christ. For the Catholic, it works a little different, though. Uh, They will often describe it in terms of continuous incarnation or prolongation. And the idea is you have Jesus, the living word, God's right hand, and he embodies his authority and saving presence in the institution of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. So where do you go to find that saving presence, to find divine revelation? You go to the institutional church uh, through her priesthood, through her various ministrations. uh, That's where you encounter Christ. So that is actually in the background informing this woman because she's thinking, whoa, you want me to read this Bible without the involvement of the church? That's a very different approach from what she's accustomed to.
1: Do you find, though, going back to the idea of authority, well, we would say that the Bible is our authority, and you were mentioning Catholics with their sacred tradition and the magisterium and the teaching office kind of all combined together. Do you find, though, that today those discussions are becoming increasingly, not that they're not relevant. It, it feels to me when I talk with people in the culture, even within Protestantism, Every's become, everyone has become their own authority. It, it's become the the judges, the world of the judges. You know, everyone was did what was right in his own eyes, to the point where people don't even want to talk to you anymore if you're you're citing the Bible to mm-hmm. them. And it's my contention that we can never remove the Scripture because without the Scripture, we don't have anything. Um, We have no revelation and understanding of who Jesus is, and we have to be able to re-engage and re-articulate this principle of justification by faith alone and scripture in a culture where the backdrop has changed, Mm -hmm. meaning that it's not as it was in the Reformation. And not that the Reformation principles have changed, but the backdrop has somewhat shifted in Mm -hmm. our understanding of uh, authority. How do we keep this idea of biblical authority in our people when they're being bombarded by images and ideas that totally contradict or challenge any idea of a outside authority of oneself rather than inside oneself Mm
0: -hmm. yeah we have to be honest about the fact that it is uh, as paul said foolishness foolishness Mm -hmm. of god (laughs) i mean i think of the apostle paul in his um, missionary journeys, <clears throat> approaching Jewish people, <clears throat> saying to them, in effect, you know, uh, you're expecting the Messiah, uh, anticipating him to come as a conquering hero. Um, he has, in fact, come and he was uh, apprehended and crucified by the Romans. But after uh, dying, he was raised from the dead and he now lives. He is uh, the Lord. And, or when Paul approached uh, Gentiles saying, you know, you have a certain understanding of power and uh, the Roman empire is part of that story, but let me tell you about the true king, the true kurios, the true soter, you know, and he uses these languages used of Caesar uh, to describe Christ. How crazy that would have sounded on the street. (laughs) Like, Mm. incredulous. And Paul's a bright guy. And yet he is proclaiming that with all his heart. And yet through the foolishness of that message, men and women are having their darkened hearts uh, enlightened and they are coming to faith. Um, I think that's the vision we need to recognize in this cultural moment. I know it sounds foolish today, but you know what? It's always sound foolish. And that's actually the point because God, who is almighty, is using us in our humility to accomplish his eternal purposes.
1: I, I'm glad that you said it's always been foolish. Uh, I think from for many of those who are of a certain vintage, we've been around enough where Christianity carried a cultural authority or influence, let's say, And that is waning due to scandals, due to uh, falls, uh, a a variety of different uh, issues, as well as the secularization of our culture. And I think we are refinding the the reception that the first century hearers or the response the first century hearers would have had once they heard the gospel, Mm -hmm. because our culture has become much more pluralistic. Mm-hmm. uh as time has gone on and i think our world's actually become a lot more like the world of the new testament where you don't have one necessarily um cultural influencer i mean yes they had rome and greek gods and goddesses and of course you had judaism in that period of time but i think today you're seeing people saying oh the culture shifted uh, everything's gone on but the message hasn't shifted The message hasn't shifted at all. And as you said, it's always been foolishness. I just think now it's become much more um, obvious that it's foolishness. And with social media, it's exacerbated it where you feel it a bit more acutely, especially since the, let's say the training wheels of Christendom have been removed. Mm-hmm. Um, as time has gone on, what is the challenge for us going forward, though, and how do we work with Roman Catholics in, in these issues? And again, I know you mentioned individuals, but are we do we try to unite on social issues, say like abortion, gay marriage, euthanasia? What do we talk about immigration or theology of the body, or do we do we try to find that common ground, or do we still keep our own little? fortresses of of theological solitude
0: yeah all right so you sent my mind going in multiple directions yeah
1: sorry i'll give you like
0: a million questions because that's how
1: it flies on apollo's water i love it i'm sufficiently CC. that's your nickname by the way cc yeah all
0: right i love this
1: okay let's do it Um,
0: yeah so um we we have to we have to come to terms with this fact that um our our message doesn't make sense to the world. Uh, what you said earlier about the early church made me think of uh, Carl Truman's book in the, in the the last portion where he uh, – Which book? Uh, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self.
1: Oh, so yes, yes, there, good you know, book. We interviewed him about that book. Yeah, and at, you know,
0: it's at the end where he points to the early church as the model we need to learn from, the, the example. Um, I think that's right. And so one example of a Catholic nature that comes to mind was um, just after I was converted, I went to Christmas dinner at uh, Uncle Billy's house, and the whole family is assembled. And they had learned that I'm no longer a Catholic. That's a big deal. That's um, a big deal, yeah. especially to Italians. Yeah, right. Yeah, you know. Uh, so I'm waiting for someone to uh, ask me about it.
1: Nothing. <laughs> They're just waiting right. in the corner. Yeah, Someone yeah. ask me why I'm an evangelical. Yeah, Please yeah, yeah. ask right. me why I'm an evangelical.
0: <laughs> Almost. So it's late at night. We're we're getting ready to go sometime after eleven o'clock. Putting putting my coat on. At that very moment, I'm approaching the door to leave. Aunt Marie calls out from across the room in front of everyone. Christopher, I understand you're no longer a Catholic. What happened? Now I got to give an answer for the hope within me. They're like, you know, like, everyone's finished the limoncello. The night's over.
1: So thankfully
0: I had just heard um, a sermon in which the preacher used this phrase that came, it was like, as Lewis says, it came riding in on a white horse and saved me. I turned to aunt Marie and said, you know, I, for all my life as a Catholic I spelled Christianity with the letters D O here's what I need to do to mm. be right with God and when I came to understand Aunt Marie is that Christianity is actually spelled D O N E it's what Jesus has done fully and finally and that's the reason for my decision and you know it was a very rare occasion where I had the the right word in the right moment mm. um but I think that's, that illustrates what we're talking about. Um, it still wouldn't have made sense. I can only imagine what they said after I left. But that's kind of the, the essence of the, of the message here. And it's up to the Lord. It's up to the spirit to extend saving grace through that message
1: in, in order to enlighten someone's mind. As you, I, I mean, I'm picturing this scene playing out as you mentioned, you're putting on your jacket and some reason I'm thinking, cause what year is this? This is nineties. Yeah, this is, this is the nineties. So I'm picturing you putting on this coat. And for some reason I have this like sports metaphor in my background where you've got like, you know, it's got emblazoned on the back, your favorite sports team. And instead you got a coat that says evangelical. (laughs) It says evangelical on the back. And then Aunt Marie speaks up. Um, But in the common parlance, like when I when I started encountering Roman Catholicism, and, and of course, I, I grew up in a small town in East Central Illinois, and there were very few Catholics in my town. Mm-hmm. So Catholicism was always far away, it was always very foreign to me. And so when I started interacting with people who came from Catholic backgrounds, I took the same approach that you'd mentioned. You're going to hell Your Theology is wrong. And even when you mentioned the side-by-side comparison, I did that full disclosure. I did that The catechism all lined up right next to the scripture. And that was about as winsome as getting hit in the face with a, a a pantyhose full of bricks. Mm -hmm. You know, that's about, that's about the extent of it. And even as I've gone on though, I've seen a lot of, people who have really been into the doctrines of the reformation. And I, and I'm, I believe in the doctrines of the reformation, but I feel like the battle that's still being fought that many of those of my reformation, um, advocate brothers and sisters, as if they're still fighting the exact same battle as they were then the the same backdrop. But now I look at it and I go, okay, what does faith alone look like in a world of self-help? Mm-hmm. That's what I I think of. Or what does Christ alone look like when it's a world of the achievement of my dreams and self-realization or that expressive individualism that Truman talks about? What does scripture alone look like next to my psychological profile? Mm -hmm. These are the questions that I still think that the Reformation speaks to us on. How do we help our people see the importance of these doctrines and how they're Applied in our modern cultural with our modern cultural backdrop.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it does speak directly to the therapeutic self, if I can use that language in that, um, you know, there's a lot of good to what we do now in the way of introspection. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna poo-poo all of that. I know the Enneagram is controversial, so, and I'm a pastor, so I'm wise enough to not step on uh, on landmines. But, you know, these sorts of things we do to understand ourselves. Um, I'm a pastor, I see a therapist. I think it's good for those of us who offer counsel to have a biblically guided, theologically guided and trained um, uh, counselor that we get, you know, uh, I seize opportunities to say that because I think it's unfortunate that there's, particularly for men, a stigma mm-hmm. attached to that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so all of that's very good. Um, but this is where the Reformation is helpful. A central concern of Martin Luther and the others was that we get curved in on ourselves, right, and curvatized say, right. And such that we get all tangled up and lost in our own emotions and our our own um awareness of whether we're measuring up or not. I mean, that's a way of describing Luther's search for a gracious God. And the solution, uh, at least from Luther, was we've got to stop looking inwardly and we need to look to Christ. Mm. We need to understand that our sufficiency comes uh, not from anything that is within uh, at the end of the day, you know, ultimately. Um, It comes rather from the victorious Savior, who attributes his victory to us. Now even as I say that I don't want to have an overly forensic faith my research What do
1: you, are, what do you mean by that? So, yeah, stop there for a second. What yeah, do you yeah, mean yeah. by over? cuz you said that earlier and I went yeah, forensic yeah, yeah. faith I start picturing CSI in my head.
0: Right that's good. Yeah. <laughs> overly judicial you know think of the think of a courtroom where the judge declares one not guilty. That's a way we understand a right standing before God. We're declared innocent, and that's true, and that's the ground, that's mm-hmm. the basis of our acceptance before God. Um, but the the one who is justified is also renewed. God gives us a spirit, and so it's not stri- simply forensic uh, mm-hmm. or judicial. Um, it, it's actual. It's it's it consists in the the renewing work uh, inwardly. So what I'm suggesting and and what I think the the reformers would say is our first instinct needs to be to look outside of ourselves, to the person of Christ, recognize his victory, attributed to us, us imputed, reckoned. Um, That is why we can, we have the temerity or the audacity to approach God's throne because we're not approaching him on the basis of our own merits but rather uh, by the merits of Christ. That is the centerpiece of the gospel. Uh, we, we don't look toward heaven and see a God who's folding his arms, tapping his toe, waiting for us to get our act together. No, he's the father of the prodigal son who comes running to us even when we're at our worst and embraces us and cleanses us and uh, gives us the grace to repent and you know all of that um but i think i think that's instructive for us in this cultural moment now to your question because it it helps us to see i'm not at the center of the universe like everything in in society would lead me to that conclusion you know and everything virtually in social media uh operates according to that premise uh, that i am lord and uh looking to christ reminds us no i'm not lord uh uh and um and so, I think good gospel teaching is essential in order to move us off of ourselves into a, a self understanding that is defined from top to bottom by the person of Christ. Mm. But then take the next step and realize that um, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared in advance that we would walk in, you know, and that there is something. Very living and active. We work this out with fear and trembling. You know, disciplines of faith is part of that. It's uh, we can't we can't allow our our doctrine of um, of the God this understanding of the gospel uh, as grounded in Christ's finished work to to um, lead us toward a cheap grace. And that there's a long history of that as well. Of course, you know
1: define cheap grace just for our yeah our so listeners.
0: i'm i'm using that language from uh, bonhoeffer particularly and we might call it an easy believism, the notion that you know i prayed a prayer at some point i have believed and uh on that basis of of my decision i now am secure uh, without reference to the way i live for christ from day to day uh that would be cheap grace and um that's a real problem today that uh, we uh, need to be concerned with.
1: How do we help our people then grow to get out of that easy believism? It, it seems that as churches have gone on, as they, especially during the pandemic, churches started competing, unfortunately, fryballs. Uh, Church was forced to go into a different form than many of us were prepared or, uh, or, or understood the implications of them. And as we've seen, as time has progressed, it it has been disastrous in some places as time has gone on. And we've seen people leave, not come back, or they think that they can just do church and they online. How do we help our people call them back to a real biblical discipleship of growth and good teaching?
0: Yeah, let's use Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a point of departure there, uh, you know, he was instrumental in forming the so-called confessing church, uh, the church that stood against Hitler. And, uh, there was a a particular school, a training center, residential training center that, that he started. Finkenwalde, uh, pardon me, those of German speakers, uh, started it. What does that
1: mean? What does that mean?
0: Yeah, that's just the town in which it was located.
1: Oh, okay. I thought it was like, thinking Wilda, thinking Walda. I'm like, yeah. thinking what? What are we talking about here? I miss <laughs> it, my German <laughs> is very bad.
0: <laughs> right, so when he started it, uh, it was uh, intentionally framed by the Sermon on the Mount. And his his desire was to form students, future pastors, church leaders, uh, with the insight of Jesus' words, starting with the Beatitudes and going right through, because, and here's the point, this is where it's instructive for us, in order to stand against the propaganda of Hitler and all the influence of Nazism, which by that time was great, he uh, Bonhoeffer said, we have to go deep. This theology of the cross is something for which we can't just give lip service, but it needs to really shape us. And so they, they did, and they had confession. And by the way, Bonhoeffer was criticized by some. Uh, his friend Karl Barth, for example, uh, uh, leveled that kind of criticism, suggesting that what Bonhoeffer was doing there was more reflective of Roman Catholicism because it, it felt monastic. Mm. And the way Bonhoeffer responded to Bart and others was to say, no, this is just what's needed now. In this cultural moment. In other words, the temptation to go with the flow, which meant to go toward Hitler, was so great that we need to apply the most rigorous disciplines of faith that we have. And the the place to which Bonhoeffer went was uh, the Sermon on the Mount, rightfully, I think. I think th- we're in that moment now, Travis. Yeah,
1: That's what I was going to ask you. And Why do you think we're in that moment now? And how does, if we are in that moment, how does the Sermon on the Mount apply and speak to us in this cultural moment?
0: Well, social media obviously has a lot to do with it. These devices we carry that convey messages to us all day long. Mm. You know, as a pastor, I stand up Sunday morning, I have a half an hour or so, and I do my best. And look, I I do it with great optimism because I believe the spirit works through his word to effect real transformation. It's it's not our rhetoric, you know. Um, But... But our people are, and we all are being shaped constantly by these forces. And uh, so it is a, a sobering reality that we have to take seriously. And we ought to pause and and ask, what can we do? What stakes do we have to put into the ground in order to approach life differently uh, in view of this threat? Um, and so, yeah. Here's if I were to answer your question, I would do it this way. I think when we look at the Beatitudes and the teaching that follows, um, we recognize a counterintuitive turn. And you went to Gordon Conwell; you'll appreciate this. Um, there, at Gordon Conwell. You know, we I don't know if you had Royce Greenler, but we we learned this uh, concept, this this theological notion called the upsilon vector. It sounds hopelessly esoteric, but it's really
1: <laughs> or something from a Back to the Future movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs>
0: But imagine uh, the English letter U or a horseshoe, right? Uh, That is the pattern of Christian life. Our Lord Jesus in his uh, incarnation descended, he humbled himself uh, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And it leads to the valley, the valley of death itself. Mm -hmm. And just when it looks like there's no hope, um, God extends his resurrection power by the spirit and he raises his son from the grave. And now in Christ, we experience that same pattern. We are constantly being humbled, broken, like the kernel of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. But alas, uh, in God's hands, it comes back to life. And that's not simply true on a macro level, that is of our conversion. It's true every single day. Hmm. That's the story that the Beatitudes tell. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. In various ways, Jesus is explaining when we humble ourselves, now think cruciformity, think the cross, because really, this is just another way of articulating what Luther said in his theology of the cross. When we say no to self and yes to Christ, and, and we identify with him in his humility and death, we are poised to experience his resurrection power. That's the vision, and if I were to boil down uh, the, the message that, that what I think we need today, it would be just that.
1: Why is it that the church, though, seems to have missed that? Not just the Beatitudes, but it it's my contention that we don't have a very good theology of suffering. The theology of cruciformity, that's the, the term that you used. I, I've heard uh, a missionary who was on the show, he said, we, we don't understand crucifixion. Of ourselves, the pain that involves. We're taking up our cross any longer. We have given up, and instead of fighting uh, or or believing the, the Scripture that says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, it's exactly what we're doing, and we're doing it in the political sphere instead. How do we help our people recapture this idea of what the Scripture is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, in this life of cruciformity?
0: Yeah, I think the answer is is the fact that it's counterintuitive. The fact that it doesn't make sense, that through brokenness and pain, we experience divine power. I mean, we've always, as humans now, have always struggled, right? The history of Israel, looking for a Messiah uh, like Joshua or David, a conquering king, and, and Jesus comes as the suffering servant. And right through church history, We can do this. I mean, this is relevant, I think, for the conversation about Catholicism and and why she has the traditions that she does. But I think it's at at the root, it's a human issue. The the, the image that came to mind as you were talking, Travis, is one I haven't thought of in a long time. But when my son was a newborn baby, now, again, with hemophilia, we had to infuse... Medication into his veins, tiny veins, so that his blood could clot. Mm. And you know, he's a little boy, so he's walking around. He's he's liable to uh, to fall and get hurt at any moment. So, you know, it was a formula for a nervous breakdown. So we'd bring him into the hospital with some regularity to get these infusions. And uh, I can remember one of the earliest occasions. uh, He 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 had experienced it a couple of times, so he knew it wasn't uh, pleasurable, uh, to, to have an intravenous needle, uh, come at him. And so we had like four or five nurses holding him down while he's screaming his head off. And here I am standing as the, the dad, the, the Sicilian dad, who's high, strung and, and worrisome to begin with watching this, you know, who's way too emotionally integrated and just like <laughs> overload, <laughs> mm. but it was instructive. Because here we are as parents and a medical staff trying to provide him with um, medication that will protect his life. But everything in his body, in his um, limbic system, uh, in his little experience as a newborn is saying, no way, get that thing away from me, right? I think that might illustrate what we're describing here with the counterintuitive nature. Everything in our being says, Poverty of spirit's not good. Mourning is not good. Um, Meekness, well, maybe meekness, but it doesn't sound that great. You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of a thing. But it is the appointed means by which we experience the divine presence.
1: It seems that we don't want to be Joseph in prison. We want to be David taking out Goliath. It, It depends on the biblical metaphor that we're using. But even our Lord as he as Jesus talks about the world will hate you but know this it hated me first and i think we are discovering rediscovering what the those global voices of christ followers have been saying for many many years that we've tried to remove uh, i actually had a missionary on the show nick Kripkin. And he had said in our conversation, he said, oftentimes, whenever we in the West hear about persecution of someone, a missionary that we sponsor, it's get him out, get them out, get them out, get him out. And he said, oftentimes, though, it might be that's, it, he illustrated it this way, it might be taking Joseph out of prison too soon. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. his point was, is that maybe God wants him to suffer in order to show his church. Yeah. And that's a hard, like you said, it's counterintuitive. I mean, we, we do need to measure that and understand it because there are times that we do. I mean, even Paul, there's times where he, he fleed, he gets, you know, dropped down in a bucket outside of a wall. And there's other times where he, he suffers. So there it's a both and not an either, or it's just learning the proper situation and what God has called us to in that moment. Think about Paul for
0: a moment. We, I taught through Acts last year. Uh, It was just breathtaking to watch him passage after passage entering the city, goes to the synagogue, preaches Christ, and you know, set your clock. There's gonna be a mob waiting for him with stones who are gonna pummel him. And this is Paul who was, you know, one of the most educated, informed, devout men you could possibly imagine. And this is his experience uh, being being, uh, opposed in this way. And yet through that ministry, the kingdom advanced with uh, a quality of of power and beauty that is unparalleled. Um, that is instructive or it ought to be.
1: Taking into consideration the Beatitudes for a moment, you're working on a book about the Beatitudes, aren't you? Are you not?
0: Just finished it, submitted it to Crossway and uh, it is now in the editing phase.
1: You know. So when will we be able to get a hold of that book? And what's it called? What's the title?
0: Yeah, the provisional title. What what I've given them is, uh, as in heaven, um, embracing who you are and what you Were called to do. We'll see if they go with that.
1: Do they? So they could pick a different title and just yeah, not they, tell you.
0: Yeah, the publishing company owns it, so they they but they'll they have the final decision. But they're really good about uh, dialoguing, and uh, receiving your input. So. We'll see.
1: Awesome. Well, how, how can people learn and follow you and what you're doing?
0: Yeah, I have a website, chriscostaldo.com. It It's the the it feels hopelessly narcissistic to say that, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it helps my mother and my intern actually go there and read my stuff. <laughs> and, um, so yeah, when I have when I write something, uh, that's the place where I put it.
1: Nice. Well, Chris, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show and dialoguing about these very important and not easily always digestible issues, but they are extremely important for us to know and understand because we are talking about eternity. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about the most important thing on the planet, and therefore it deserves full dedicated minds that are willing to wrestle with these concepts that are not always easy to understand. But I want to thank you for allowing God to use you in that and uh, coming on the show and dialoguing uh, dialoguing with us about it.
0: Yeah, it's my privilege. Great to be with you, Travis.
1: I hope you found that conversation helpful. I know I did. Like I said in the interview, I've made all of the classic mistakes when talking to my Roman Catholic family and friends over the years, well-intentioned, but mistakes nonetheless. Chris's emphasis on where we look to for authority is extremely important. I think that it points to where we often go astray. We don't even realize we're looking at things quite differently, so we end up talking past one another. Also, the fact that the Roman Catholic Church is so much larger than we Protestants really understand. As Chris said, he has met with leaders in the Roman Catholic Church that have been very open, and some not at all, which means we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. At the same time, Catholics and Protestants are facing a common challenge, a culture that doesn't value or accept any authority outside of the self. Chris's suggestion that we all need to follow the example of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and live out the Sermon on the Mount really rings true to us. Here at Apollo's Watered, we talk about discipleship for all of life, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Our editor, Kevin O'Brien, calls it the manifesto of citizenship in the kingdom of God. Living like that is going to seem foolish to the world, but like Chris said, that's not new. The gospel has always been foolish. But even though we rebel against it, just like Chris's infant son pulling away from the medicine that would give him the power to live, it is in this foolishness that we all find our truth. Thank you so much for listening. These past two months have seen our audience grow and downloads increase. We know that's because you were sharing how the podcast has helped you. Thank you and keep it up. Please share Apollos Watered with your friends, whether on social media or face-to-face. Reviews on the Apple podcast platform really help others to find us as well. And if God lays it on your heart, would you consider becoming a watering partner with us to help water the world? We have a lot of ideas and plans that we'd like to pursue, but we really need funding to make them happen. Go to apolloswater.org and click the Support Us button. Thanks in advance. Much thanks to the Apollo's Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody.